This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show here on the network. I am your host Matthew Rushing and with me as he is always from the frozen tundra it's Dan Gunther. Dan how is it going today? Oh uh, not too bad Matthew. I'm surviving up here on the uh, on the frozen plains of Grand Prairie. <laughs> ah ah so um a lot like Hoth, then, um, in that other star universe. Yeah, yeah, a lot like that. I'm, I'm looking at the horizon for Imperial Walkers. Nothing mm-hmm. yet, but you know that or Andorian fight scenes because yes, uh, you know Andorian <laughs> winters and even summers are, are quite cold. So uh, I bet lots of those break out there in Canada. Definitely, yeah. Gotta be on the lookout for Shran with his Ushan swinging for my neck. <laughs> Man, that guy, jeez. Just just settle down, bro. I mean, <laughs> gosh. Well, Dan, we did want to do something a little bit different today uh, as we started. Um, just a few weeks ago, uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, passed away, and I thought it would be a fun idea to honor his memory and talk about his character and talk about some of our favorite uh, Spock books. And in fact, I asked on the Babel Conference for people to give me some recommendations for people and uh, just some books that that we've read as well. And so uh, overwhelmingly on the Babel Conference, the book that I got referenced the most was the classic Spock's World, which I'm a terrible Star Trek fan. I haven't (laughs) read yet. Um and so I look forward to actually getting a cover of this because uh, I think it'll hold new meaning for us when we finally do it here on Literary Treks. Definitely. Uh, Spock's World is one of my favorite novels, and I'm I'm not that far uh, off from you, Matthew. I actually just read it in the last couple of years here. Uh, I was kind of doing a reread of, or a read for the first time of a lot of Diane Duane's novels. And this one is uh, really great, really incredible great moments for Spock uh, and also great moments for the rest of the cast too. Um, McCoy and Spock together, of course, is just a great combination. And this novel has that, uh, those two um, really shining in this novel. Well, and I'm really excited to to be able to read it because I I know how informative it was for people back in the day uh, about Spock and and people I think felt like they knew him even more after reading her book. So I'm very excited to get into that one. Um, Our friend Norman Lau mentioned the, the Spock Reflections comic which actually is something that Chris and I have done on Literary Treks. We talked about that in Literary Treks 50, and I definitely think that is an interesting one. It's it's very um, introspective for Spock, as as I guess you probably guessed. He <laughs> is reflecting on his life after The Undiscovered Country, and I think it's definitely worth uh, checking out, especially when thinking about Spock at this point and Leonard Nimoy and his passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one that, that unfortunately I haven't read myself. Um, but the, uh, what you say, like him reflecting on his life as, as Spock, that's, that's really enticing. That would definitely be a really good one to read. Uh, the next one I see that you got from the Babel conference, uh, was Spock must die. Uh, this is a really, really early, uh, I think Bantam novel. Yeah. 
um, which also actually I have not read myself. <laughs> I haven't either. I know the title just because it's so famous, and I think it will definitely be something we'll have to reach back and do just because it would be so much fun to kind of pick one of those older books out. Um, now, this is one that I know that you have read, Troublesome Minds, Dan, mm-hmm. and uh, it was actually on Barnes & Noble's list as well for Spock books for remembering um Leonard Nimoy, which I thought was fantastic and great that Dave has a new book coming out soon as well. And we're going to be talking to him about that uh, coming up very soon on the show uh, once it's released. So what a great um, uh, reference for him there mm-hmm. uh, on barnesandnoble.com goodness yeah that's that's excellent troublesome minds uh that was a great novel it was kind of it's just one of those five-year mission novels that you get a lot of but this one was definitely a, a hidden gem i i really enjoyed this novel and it's actually made me really excited for uh his upcoming one uh he writes spock incredibly well and uh i'm i'm hoping his next novel we get more of the same because it was pretty incredible well, next we had uh, Devil's Bargain, which I thought of. One, because we had had Tony Dano on Literary Treks. Uh, mm. That was Literary Treks 14 all the way back there. And um, I loved this novel because it really did have a very big Spock role. Um, he got to play a very interesting role with a lot of Horda of all you know, races. <laughs> and so um, it's a fantastic read. And, and Spock really kind of gets to branch out. And I thought it was a great way of using him in just a way we're not... N- we're not usually seeing Spock, you know, usually he's having to be this kind of emotionless, um, logic-driven character, and, and here it he just has a whole new role to play, and I don't want to say any more because I just think you should go read it because it is pretty fantastic. <laughs> Definitely. This was another one that I really enjoyed, uh, and like you said, Spock's role with regards to the uh, the brood of Horda is <laughs> pretty great. Um so the next one on the list here we have is The Fire and the Rose, which was his uh, novel in the Crucible trilogy, with each novel featuring McCoy, Spock, and Kirk, uh, respectively. And this was a this is a great one, I, again, for the character of Spock. All three of those novels feature those characters so well, and this one was a very excellent one showcasing um, the wonderful Spock that we know and love. It is something that I'm looking forward to covering here on Literary Treks because uh, David Archer's the third, I think, does a fantastic job of writing each of those characters revolving around that important event with um, the city on the edge of forever. And uh, each novel, yeah, does a great job. The McCoy one mm-hmm. is is hands down one of my favorite Star Trek novels ever written. Absolutely, the Spock one yeah. is yeah, very good, and um, is so is the Kirk one. Uh, very surprising uh, at the end for the Kirk novel as well. So. Yeah, all of these are great, and um, the having the Spock-centric one here, I, I felt like it just had to be on the list. And in fact, Dan, for anybody who's looking forward to uh, learning more about those novels, I did an interview with uh, David R. George III, um, and it was an extension of something that we had had on Literary Treks. We did it basically a Literary Treks supplemental with him. Um, I wrote him some questions, and one of the questions there was about... Um, the the Crucible series and and uh, writing about the Trinity of Kirk Spock and McCoy. You can find that on the website. And I'll actually just put the link in the show notes so everybody can take a look at it because it was a really fun thing to get him um, to to talk about some of the inspiration and genesis for those books and everything. So uh, definitely, if you're wanting to get into those. It's a fantastic um, interview here to read with him, and I, I really appreciated the fact that he took the extra time uh, because this was a series that the first time that we talked to him, I really wanted to, to be able to talk about, but we were talking about one of his other books, and just, you know, with the interview time, not enough, but he thankfully said that it would be okay if I sent him some written questions about that, and oh, uh, turned out yeah. to be really fantastic. So I think all the listeners will really enjoy reading that because it's something that's kind of hidden on the website these days. Uh, those old articles from back when we started Literary Treks. Oh gosh, what almost two um, over two years ago now. So um, wow. <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long. Um, well, the the next book that we have is The Sorrows of the Empire. That is the Mere Universe Spock. And David Mack wrote a fantastic book there that um, I have not gotten a chance to read yet. 
Um, it's one of those things where um, I just got behind in the mirror universe and, and never got a chance to catch up, but I've heard nothing but good things about this. And knowing that it's from Dave Mack, it could be nothing but brilliant, really. Absolutely. This is a, an excellent novel. And again, like you say, it's the mirror Spock. It's not you know, the prime Spock. It really re- reflects Leonard Nimoy's uh, channeling of Spock. You hear his voice when you uh, when you read these novels. Uh, this one and the follow-up, Rise Like Lions, the kind of legacy that the mirror Spock creates in the mirror universe is really inspiring and really interesting to read about for sure. Well, the very last one that we have is the Vulcan Soul Trilogy. Um, each one of those books focuses on Spock after the undiscovered country. He's an admiral at this point, and uh, great things. If you know, if you're a lover of Spock and, and you're just wanting something good to read, those are, would be, I think, another great choice. Um, having three books to choose from there. The first book in the series is called Exodus. The next one is called Exiles, and the last one is called Epiphany. And so, and those released back in 2004 through 2007 and I'm going to put a link for each of these books in the show notes so that way you get a chance to to be able to find out more about them uh, either through um, memory beta or of course the interview that we had there with uh, David R. George III and it's definitely sad uh, that we have lost Leonard Nimoy uh, but uh, something that I mentioned on the 602 Club I think the last week is the fact that um, I really loved what Ken Ray said on Mission Log and that character of Spock will live on because that idea will live on as, as long as people continue to write great novels for him, uh, great comics for him. That character lives on and what we're all missing will be the, the man behind you know the Spock years and um, it is unfortunate that he has uh, left us but um, he has left us a fantastic legacy that is for sure. Definitely. We can really thank Leonard Nimoy for a lot of what Star Trek is and and has become over the years, and it's it's an emotional time for for Star Trek fans. Uh, Leonard Nimoy was a was an amazing person who brought to life one of the best characters in modern media ever, I think, and he will definitely be sorely missed. Well, hopefully, for all of you fans, this will help you. Um get in some more Spock time uh, with some great books and continue to let us know some of your favorite Spock moments or, or in the lit or in the comics. Uh, we'd love to hear about them there on the Babel Conference. Well, Dan, we do have quite a lineup today in news with uh, the comics that we have to talk about. And first up is Apes Trek 3. Uh, this is the third installment in the Apes Trek crossover and Last time we left uh, the the series here, um, Taylor had, unbeknowingly to anybody else, shockingly enough, <laughs> knocked out Chekhov and stolen his communicator. And in this episode, uh, or in this issue, we just pick up with him uh, calling the Enterprise, telling them it's the captain, which I'm not sure how they're not tra- being able to figure that out, that it's not Kirk, and he beams up to the Enterprise, and basically insanity <laughs> ensues uh, as they chase him all over. Um, what did you end up thinking about this third installment for this Apes Trek crossover? Well, my first question is, is our crew this incompetent, or is Taylor just this good? Um I mean, I know he's Charlton Heston, but, you know, come on. (laughs) Like, first, okay, so he knocks out Chekhov, and how long does it take for them to discover that Chekhov is missing? I don't, I don't understand here. Well, well, you had to remember that there's that scene there before they've realized that he has gone, and, um, well, McCoy is, is taken by all of these people and he's leering at the half-dressed you know human woman that travels around with taylor so <laughs> he's definitely got his sights on other things so i'm not so surprised that he didn't notice but all the rest of the people that are down there i mean kirk himself to not notice that one checkoff is missing and taylor is missing it just it you're right it they just come <laughs> off as a couple a bunch of noobs like yeah. what's going on <laughs> and then he calls the ship and Kyle just beams him aboard I mean I guess we have precedent for this Kirk called a Klingon ship and managed to convince them that 
he was the captain. So, I mean, it, it happens in Star Trek. Apparently, there's no code word clearance or anything like that to beam aboard a ship. Kirk was speaking Klingon at that time. Yeah. You know? Uh, this, yeah, I just don't, I don't know. All of that said, I'm I'm kind of getting into the story a little bit more with this issue. Uh, I'm not quite as turned off by the whole idea as I was with the first two issues. And there are some moments here and there that I'm actually kind of enjoying in this story. I don't know. What, what was your kind of overall impression of this? I just don't know what to make of it yet. I think that that's the thing. You know, I'm in the third issue already, and I just feel is that I don't know what they're trying to do with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it feels very much still like something that we've seen before with yeah. the Klingons and the, you know, Kirk uh, and I just, I I need it to start being original sometime, um, mm-hmm. which you would think it would be easy to be original when you're crossing apes and track together. But the storyline so far is just not original. And I think that's what's just frustrating me about the series. It's like, if you're going to do this, it, it, you need to really create something unique that hasn't been seen before. And I've just seen this in, in many episodes of TOS and plenty of different comics so um i'm still very 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 much on the fence if not just kind of bored with it so mm-hmm. so we've had three issues so far dan and really we only have two issues left for them to be able to redeem themselves and i'm not sure if that can happen but it can and uh, the last two issues could completely turn this story around so i don't want to completely disqualify this series yet um I'd love to be able to, to say that I, I would recommend the whole thing when we get to the end, but as of now, I'm still saying this is something that I might go into the comic book store and pick up on the shelf and kind of peruse through, but it's not something that I really want to own so mm-hmm. far. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, like you said, the overall story is pretty unoriginal, not much new to talk about here. As I said, there are there are a few moments I enjoyed. I liked the the classic Kirk convincing the enemy to kind of switch sides and come over. I mean, he kicks Taylor's ass. I mean, he kicks (laughs) Charlton Heston's butt. That's true. I mean, absolutely. So if that's not enough for you, I think that this comic definitely won't be enough because that's really what it had going for it was a, was a Taylor Kirk fight. It was a smackdown. Definitely. And you know, Kirk gets the token shirt rip. Yeah, he does. So, you know, yeah, that's worth something. So, exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, next on the comics list, we've got ongoing number 42, Behemoth Part 2. Uh, what was your take just on them wrapping up this story? And um, we are going to give a little bit of spoilers. Um, so if you haven't read this issue, I, I do want to make that um, plain here. So just go read the issue real quick and then come back and, and take a listen. What did you end up thinking about uh, the way that they ended up wrapping up this two-part little duology that they had going on well maybe i was spoiled by the q story um but i felt it wrapped up pretty quickly uh i kind of wanted to learn more about this behemoth and where it's from and and i just felt we kind of got robbed of that a little bit at the end um but for the most part, I enjoyed the uh, I enjoyed the alien hunter. I thought he was a pretty cool character. Uh, again, though, I would have liked to have seen more of him and, and learned more about where he came from and, and what exactly brought him to, you know, this whole situation. It was really interesting because I'm, I'm completely with you. I do feel like it all wraps up very quickly. One of the neat things that the comic does is, is you know, they're on the five-year mission at this point. And uh, it was nice to see them kind of having to wrap their head around, okay, why are we out here? And, you know, Scott even talks about, are, are we out here to play exterminator to the galaxy, you know, basically to play God? And so I thought that was a great question to be asking. And, you know, um, and then Spock, of course, brings up the whole idea, well, it, with this behemoth is, is going to be, you know, killing billions of people, one creature is 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 worth the sacrifice that needs the many thing. And then, of course, O'Hara brings up the great point. Well, 
isn't it just acting on the instincts that it was born with? And so some really great discussions that are happening that Star Trek does very well. Mm -hmm. Um, We just kind of rush through them. I feel like almost would have loved to have seen one more issue. So it was a trilogy to kind of have them dive into some of those things you talked about. I think it would have really helped. Now, saying that too, it was really interesting because this is is very continuous. Like they are stopping this issue and it's leading them directly into the next issue. They mm-hmm. they have lost all of their dilithium and now they're stranded basically. And what happens next, we're not necessarily sure. So I think that's really cool that they're using these storylines to kind of build off each other and in the same way that where Enterprise would do those two-part or three-part arcs in its last season and kind of have them all loosely connected at the same time. Mm -hmm. That's great storytelling here for the comic, I think. So not perfect, but I I think um, there were some things that I really liked in here, and and I think your, um, your, your comments really could have made this comic i think um just uh, it, it could have ended on a, such a higher note than it did if they had just taken a little bit more time with the story mm-hmm. yeah that whole discussion uh, about the ethics of killing the creature i i again i really liked that and i would have loved to have seen it played out a little bit more like them actually have to deal with that decision whatever it may be rather than it kind of taken out of their hands at the end pretty quickly. Uh, But like you said, I'm really excited about the idea of them leading so directly into the next story uh, with the setup at the end here. Um, I think that's excellent. I like the, I like continuity. I like continuing stories like we got on Deep Space Nine versus what we got on Voyager, for example. Oh yeah, that's that <laughs> is very exciting to to see that here with the comic. Well, the last one that we have for you guys is New Visions number five. Uh, that's John Burns' photo comic. And um, what did you end up thinking of this one? Because I thought that uh, the got you know the long story, and then they always have a short story at the end. I think both of these stories uh, very well done, very interesting, and in fact. I think the last story there with Spock, where he's going through the Colonar, very appropriate um, for the fact that we just lost Leonard Nimoy. And so um, both of these, I think, hands down, if we're just talking story, this was excellently done here by John Byrne. Definitely. Story-wise, like you said, both of these are really great. I really got into the story with number one and the Yorktown and and this massive alien ship. Uh, It just drew me in. I thought it was really excellent. And like you said, this Spock story at the, at the end, just so poignant and apropos to what's happened recently. I, I, I think it's incredible that I'm assuming it's a coincidence, right? Like there's no way that this was scheduled no, I, I, I it yeah. can't have happened. So it had to be a coincidence, but a, a very fortuitous one at, at that because it, it really does, I think, do a great job of of leaving you with that bittersweet feeling at the end of the comic, just as we all feel as Star Trek fans at the moment. And so I, I really do. I think it was fantastic. Um, you talked about the fact that this story uh, in the beginning here at the at the the long story here in the comic it revolves around. Um, Pike's number one and what I loved here is that we got to see that original Enterprise crew with um, Pike and number one and and all of those uh, crew members and they kind of merged this story with Kirk's Enterprise now and um, number one becoming an admiral I just thought it was all working together so well what did you think about the fact that they're having to do this story and create a ton of new things specifically they have to create an older number one from all of that they have from um uh, major barrett as being playing number one as well as creating the alien race and the alien ship and all of that as we talk about you know part of this is the photo comic um and how did that part work for you dan well, as usual, some parts worked and some parts really didn't. 
the scenes on the bridge, for example, I think all look great putting characters in places they weren't before. Um, but anytime there's kind of a new set to build, it just, it doesn't look right to my eye. It looks Photoshopped, which obviously it is. Um, and some of the character work, the older number one, uh, <laughs> the kind of shock of, of white hair coming out of her forehead. It just, Where it's it just literally looks like somebody painted white around her head. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like data and all good things. She looks like exactly. a bloody skunk. <laughs> it's exactly what it looks like. Yeah. And, and and little things, like I like the idea of the Yorktown's bridge having blue highlights instead of the red highlights that the Enterprise's bridge has. That's nice. But in this Photoshopped version, it's like this electric glowing blue that just doesn't look right. Yeah. Um, it, again, I, I think that this whole series would be so much better served if we were just doing photorealistic art and not photoshopped of the characters from the series because I think it would all flow and fit so much better and then you wouldn't have things stand out and pull you out of the story because, you know, this was, on both sides, fan-stinkantastic storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do have to say the Photoshop work for the Spock story at the end was brilliant. No problems there. Absolutely none. I think like you said, it is really when we are creating those brand new things or altering characters in such a way because they are older and having to do that, especially with number one skunk hair here, (laughs) it it really just, it it, it draws away from the, the glory of the storytelling that John Byrne is giving us and and I think that's unfortunate so I highly recommend this for the stories just be aware that you are going to run into some images that are going to be like huh Mm -hmm. yeah and and there are like I said anytime they're on the bridge or if it's a close-up of a character like it looks great you know it's it's kind of neat to see as though we're getting an episode that we never saw before but yeah when it's in the new environments and aging the characters it just doesn't look quite right <laughs> it it doesn't um and that's okay uh, you know as long as he does keep creating these good stories i'll be okay with it i'm, I'm mm-hmm. gonna let it go but yeah, I, I i do firmly believe that this would be better served if you almost just kind of like ha- had an alec ross doing your artwork inside where it is very photorealistic paint um, that you could just be creating, I think, masterpieces. Whereas this, it's on the verge of being a masterpiece of, of a TOS story, but it's hampered by the look. So, mm. highly recommend this one, though. I, I think, especially for the Spock story at the end, even though it's only a few pages long, it's brilliant and it, it perfectly encapsulates that kind of melancholy mood that we are all in as Star Trek fans. And well done, John Byrne, for creating two fantastic stories in this comic. I definitely, I couldn't agree more. Um, one one final note I have to say, it was kind of cool seeing Pike's crew. Uh, yes. Like it, it was like if that, ver- if that pilot had gone to series, what it would look like. And that's yeah. pretty cool. It was really nice to see that. And again, that was one of those parts where it was really well done um, because he could literally just draw some scenes straight out and you didn't have to do too many alterations. Really well done. So I'm very excited to see that. Well, um, before we hit our feature today, we just wanted to remind you about Audible.com, our our sponsor, who is the premier source for audiobooks. So many titles to choose from and, of course, new titles each week. You can even get some of those classic Star Trek books that we were talking about, like Spock's World, Federation, Prime Directive, all things that really do a great job of featuring somebody like Spock. Audible has something for everyone, though, and of course, as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice, along with a 30-day trial, just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we thank Audible for supporting Literary Treks and the network. Well, Dan, I'm really excited to announce that we are finally wrapping up 
Mission Gamma. And it is so exciting to finally get here. We've reached Lesser Evil, and um, this book is is very different than the others. And one of them is it's very very short. Um, it is it is not novella length. It's it's just I think a shy over that almost. It, it's just not a long book, but it's jam packed with a lot of things. On their way home, Ellis Vaughn and the crew of the USS Defiant make a shocking discovery. Meanwhile. Kira Norris pursues Shakar Eden's supposed assassin to Trill, while Ro Loren and Admiral Akar and General Linalis investigate why Hizinki Guard assassinated Bajoran leader. And Robert Simpson had a very big job here, I think, with this book. Uh, to, to wrap it all up and tie it all together and, and give us a kind of a fitting end and push us towards what I consider to be basically the penultimate and the finale for the, the season eight of, of Deep Space Nine through the, the relaunch here. Because by Unity, we really wrap up the, the kind of the entire arc of Cisco being gone and everything that's happened with um, the crew. And then, of course, Unity brings Cisco back. And it also brings Bajor, spoiler alert, into the Federation. <laughs> so, um, just um, first thoughts, even before we even get into the book, first thoughts about Lesser Evil, um, before we kind of jump into some of the th- things we wanted to talk about about the book. Well, like you say, this is kind of uh, having to wrap up a lot of storylines. I'm reminded of kind of the uh, multi-episode arc that started the final chapter on Deep Space Nine, and you got all those promos that said, it all comes down to this. And that's kind of the feeling that I'm getting with uh, a lot of the um, the political happenings on Deep Space Nine coming to a head here, as well as the Defiant starting to make its way back to the wormhole to return to the Alpha Quadrant. It feels like there are a lot of threads to tie up, and... They do it in, and Robert Simpson does it in kind of an action-packed, um, fast-paced way. And yeah, I think it's a, it's it's an interesting read, and there's a lot going on for such a short page count. Well, and I was reading this on the way home. I was on the plane. I was flying back from Dallas. I, I read the whole thing on the way home. And what caught me off guard was just the fact that I felt like goodness, I could have read just this book and kind of gotten a taste of everything that had happened in Mission Gamma, and he's still kind of setting up the storylines for what's going to happen next, as well as kind of wrapping up some of the big plot threads from Mission Gamma, all in one book and with a page count that's just astronomically short. It is (laughs) amazing what he's able to do, and I just got to, I mean, hands down to him for for creating a storyline that makes so much sense, that's so coherent, and really does a great job of filling you in if this is the first one that you picked up, even though it says book four on it. (laughs) Um, And maybe even if you hadn't read any of the other Deep Space Nine books, this book has a way of kind of letting you in on all the touch points of everything that's happened to all the characters without feeling like it's wasting time or bogging it down. And again, it's because this book isn't very long. It's mm-hmm. it's really incredible. So <laughs> um, I was blown away because, you know, again, reading it all in one sitting, it just all came out so well. So uh, Robert Simpson, well done, my friend. Well Definitely. done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and I mean, I kind of have to admit here I went into this book thinking that I might not like it. There's a name on the cover that I don't really recognize as one of the core Star Trek authors, and it's a lot shorter than the books that came before it. I'm kind of, you know, there's a lot of warning signs that, ooh, you might not like this, prepare to be disappointed, but I definitely wasn't. I read this book uh, not quite in one sitting like you did, but pretty close, and I was blown away. I thought it was perfectly paced and the story did exactly what it needed to do. Well, this, I mean, has just kind of a really big payoff in it because all throughout the series, and one of the things that we have tried to do in Literary Treks is to read the books 
in chronological order and read them as if we didn't know what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And for me, as somebody who hasn't really read these books again since they came out, and this is a long time ago. I mean, this book here, its its original release date was back in November of 2002. And so, goodness, how long ago was that? I mean, this we're talking over 10 years, you know, so it's... There's a lot of plot points that I kind of know the basic outline and structure, but I might forget. And one of the things I forgot was they're back. That's <laughs> right. The conspiracy aliens that John and Ken really hated so much on Mission Log, <laughs> they're back. And uh, the parasites are really wrecking havoc just all over uh, this Deep Space Nine and really giving us that long awaited answer of what the heck has been wrong with Shakar and all these people for so long? Yeah, definitely. I mean, on the one hand, the answer to the Shakar conundrum is kind of satisfying in that, like, oh, it wasn't really Shakar who was acting like this, and it, it wasn't really him, and the character we know and love hadn't become this, you know, complete jerk. jerk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um but at the same time, it, it's kind of heartbreaking to know that Shakar really had died, you know, well before we knew that he had died. And it's kind of sad that that's kind of the legacy this character gets. And, um, you know, it's I, I I'm not saying it's trampling on the character. I thought it was a really, really compelling plot development in that, like you, I read this over a decade ago. And that's kind of the one thing that I remembered was, um, Shakar being under the control of these parasites and just how heartbreaking that is. And, uh, you know, it's really sad that we lost him before we even knew that there was something wrong. Well, and what I loved is that they, again, D space nine, even though it's in book form here is picking up on a plot thread that they never bring back in the next generation, but they do what deep space Nine does best. And it takes things either from TOS or it takes things specifically from the next generation and it makes them their own. And the parasites here really become their own because what we also find out is that these parasites are related to the symbionts at Trill, which I remember reading this the first time and it completely freaking blew my mind i was like that makes so much sense and Mm. basically what we have is a parasite war yeah definitely that was again like you say it was just a plot development that makes so much sense and it's so compelling that you know we finally learn kind of what their end goal is in conspiracy they're attacking the federation and, and taking over key positions and that kind of thing but we never really got a feel for why are they doing this what are what are they trying to accomplish and in in this novel they're fully fleshed out as antagonists with uh with an agenda and that makes them very compelling much more compelling i think than they were in the next generation well and it's so interesting because their whole goal is to take over um, the Federation slowly through Bajor. They, they are going to infiltrate Bajor, and as they enter the Federation, they will then infiltrate the Federation, which will lead them to be able to destroy Trill and the Symbionts. And it's it's a very long-roaded plan, but it's really interesting. You know, they are willing to take their time. They're basically like the Sith Lords of Star Trek, who are biding their time and they found the perfect place they think to pounce. And it's it's really, really, I think, just a great use of these characters that we hadn't seen since that, you know, first season of TNG and, and probably figured we'd never see again. So I take it for you, Dan, that this whole thing still holds up and still works. Oh, definitely. Um, just as compelling as, as when I first read it. And I think the parasites from Conspiracy are probably something that a lot of people were hoping wouldn't come back because, you know, I, I remember really loving that episode as a kid as much as it disturbed me. Um, but It was we, pretty disturbing seeing was, that dude completely blown up to pieces. <laughs> I mean, smithereens everywhere man you'd be picking him out of your hair for a long time and what and when do you ever expect to see that on star trek i mean never it's just so (laughs) out of the blue (laughs) yeah we're gonna phaser his head off oh 
Okay. And completely explode like a, <laughs> a plasticine body all over the. Yeah, it was oh, hilarious. Man. Yeah, and then and then rewatching that episode as an adult though, uh, it does not hold up. It's so schlocky and over the top and pretty ridiculous. Um, so the fact that Robert Simpson was able to make the parasite such a compelling enemy here was just excellent. I loved it. Yeah, it's it's one of the things, again, that it's just another place where even Deep Space Nine, where the series is over, they're still taking great plot points. F- well, not such great plot points. They're taking <laughs> plot points from TNG and really making them their own, whether it was, you know, like the Maquis, whether it was the Cardassians, whether it's here with the Parasites. Uh, whether it's the Bajorans, they are completely and utterly making everything their own. And I think just doing a fantastic job with it. And as we talked about with Keith the Canada last week, these authors are coming up with some great reasons behind things um, that, uh, you know, trying to fill in those gaps or trying to create very interesting storylines here. And of course, this is the first time that I think the authors really had some serious freedom. And. Deep Space Nine was affording them that because they weren't having to worry about what was on TV with Voyager that much because it didn't matter. You know, Voyager was, uh, you know, 70,000 light years away. So Deep Space Nine really had pretty much everything open to them except for the Enterprise crew. And Mm -hmm. so really, really nice to just see what they did here with these parasites and I don't know about you, though. I think one of the hardest things about the storyline was... The beginning of the book, you know, Prin and Vaughn are so close. They've they've really found a way to gel uh, during this voyage in the Gamma Quadrant. And I completely forgot, honestly, about the storyline of them finding her mother and uh, the fact that she had been overtaken by the Borg. And they get the signal... They go to the planet, they find her mother, and um, gosh, it's it's just heartbreaking what Vaughn feels like he has to do. Yeah, this is a very, uh, very dark storyline for these characters, and heartbreaking is, is absolutely the best description of it. Um, I remember thinking when I was reading it how kind of implausible and coincidental everything was that kind of led to uh, these events. But putting all of that aside, it's just, it's so tragic that, uh, that these characters were finally making headway after decades of being estranged. And then uh, just to kind of have it torn apart again um, through what happens here with uh, Prin's mother, it was just awful. It really, really was. Um, you know, the fact that they find her and it looks like they may be able to save her and um, Vaughn realizes, you know, at the end that um, there really wasn't a way to save her uh, and that you know, he kills her. It's basically he euthanizes her, but she was never really there. Um, you know, she she really didn't exist anymore. She had completely lost pretty much most of, of who she was. And um, I, I thought, um, you know, that the fact that for her at this point, you know, really regaining her humanity would have meant kind of probably her death. Would she have been able to live with everything she would have been responsible for? Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, it was a it was a really tough ethical decision that he makes. Um, you know, I'm not saying he made the right one at all because I, I don't know if he did or not. Um, but at the same time, I feel like his his motivation at least is to save his wife and mm-hmm. his 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 daughter from further pain, really. Um, and even though she might hate him now, uh, I I think in the end, yeah, it's just it's gonna set these characters again on a very interesting path. And this was just so unexpected, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so it was a it's a tough storyline. It really Definitely. is. And and that fact that we're not sure if it was the right decision or not, I think is is just perfect for the story too, because 
you know, you, you don't want a story with a pat answer and, you know, everything justified in the end. I think the story's much more interesting with that gray area there. Did he do the right thing? Was it was it what was necessary? And also there are a lot of like allegories to um, a lot of issues that people deal with in real life, like, um, you know, euthanasia and end of life decisions and that kind of thing. And, you know, allowing someone to suffer versus um, allowing them to end things without causing pain. I, it's, it's tough. And, uh, the feelings and, and the pain that such decisions can engender were really reflected well through both Vaughn and Prynne in this story. Yeah, it was, it was well done and well handled because it, like most Star Trek stories, it doesn't leave you, at least the good ones, it doesn't leave you with an easy answer. It leaves you to make your own decision. Um, and I think that that's um, that's the best kind of uh, a moralistic storytelling for Star Trek is to try and leave you um, to figure out what was the right thing to do um, and did they do the right thing in the show or, or in the book that you're reading. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I really, really liked that. And uh, again, it was... It was really hard to, to read that again because, um, you know, at the beginning of the book, they're just so happy together as father and daughter. And uh, I don't want to look forward because I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but it's it's definitely going to be a tough road for, for both of them. So Definitely. Well, Dan, <clears throat> the, the fact that this was so fast-paced and so much shorter, I mean, it, it, we were talking about on the other side of the page, you know, if you looked at Cathedral and or Twilight and put this book next to it, you know, it it feels dwarfed. Um, do you wish that the book had been longer? Well, as I've said, the uh, I, f- I feel like the pace of the story uh, and the length of the story just really work well here. Um, there's no kind of extraneous stuff. There's no fluff. There's no padding. It just tells the story and and moves you on to the next thing really quickly. And I feel like for how many things are coming to a head, that really serves this story well. Again, I usually like my trek a little bit more introspective, a little bit more reflective, but this just really works for this story. Um, Apparently, and I can't remember exactly where I'd read this, uh, but... um, the editor at the time, the the intent with this series was to have each novel be progressively shorter and quicker than the one before. Um, but in this case, like the drop from cathedral to this one is uh, huge. And I, and I mean drop in size, not in quality or anything like that. Um, and, and, but like I said, for this story, I think it really works. How about you? How, what did you think of the pace and the story? Well, it was, it's interesting what you said about that there's no extraneous material. And I remember um, when we were reading This Gray Spirit, how everything, you know, it, it just kind of felt off. But this book feels completely on target, you know. And because of that, there's nothing about it that I honestly didn't like. And the fact that it really is so um, focused the places where it is introspective, especially with the Vaughn and Prin story, um, I think it does a really good job when it it slows down just a little bit there and, and Esri needs to get involved where she has to go confront Ellis. I just think it's fantastic. It really does a great character growth moment for, you know, both Dax and, and Vaughn at that point. So, you know, all in all, I think that... I've seen in, you know, we talk about this a lot on the 602 Club, laser-like focus in storytelling can be nothing but helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to just tell your story without any extraneous material is going to be the most helpful to you. And I think that's where this story is just really um, set on fire with with the fact that you get in and you get out and you have everything you need 
from the wrapping up of this series to the end of the next or to the what's coming next interesting uh, background is we're kind of talking about this too uh, just some ideas they thought about robert simpson and marco palmieri uh the idea with the deep space nine writers was that uh, jennifer cisco being the one who had been assimilated Oh, wow. uh, and and not having it be Vaughn's wife, and uh, the idea for for Vaughn's wife was to be found alive yet assimilated, and uh, with Jennifer Cisco being the one who had been assimilated. So, very interesting idea. If it had been her, um, would have changed a lot of things. So, wow, I I yeah, I didn't know that. That's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So, just a little tidbit I found. I was I was reading up on um, on memory beta. So that's pretty cool. Um, idea that they had a just way out there and they definitely didn't go there um, but it would have changed a lot of things for sure especially if Jennifer Cisco had been able to maybe have been saved and of course Ben comes back and he's got a wife <laughs> with a baby on the way and whoo that would have been a mess hot Ooh, mess yeah. no so. absolutely and I mean I don't know how 24th century law would work but would he be married to both i I don't know. Does it become my? Uh, does it become a sister wife show at that point? Uh, <laughs> goodness, I'm glad they did not go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all I gotta say. Um, so the end of the mission gamma. I mean, and what's great is the epilogue here changes a whole bunch of things. One, a surprising character comes back. Definitely, that was a, a that was a huge surprise and very very cool. Um, Obviously picking up on story threads that have been left dangling for a little while now. Um, So we'll definitely be coming back to that story uh, very soon. Man, I tell you what, that Wayoon, he is everywhere. (laughs) I mean, Jeffrey Combs, everywhere. Even when you think he's dead. Nope, nope, nope. (laughs) Find a way to bring him back, which I just was like smiling ear to ear when I got there just because... It's it's so good to have Wayun back. Oh yeah, I I actually remember that was another one of the moments I remember reading years ago was the fact that Wayun shows up on the Defiant view screen and you're just like, oh my god, it's Wayun. Jeffrey Combs is back. I love him. Um, and I remember just the disappointment in Deep Space Nine's finale, What You Leave Behind, when the female founder says, that was Wayun's last clone that you just killed. And I was like, oh, I mean, I know Deep Space Nine is ending, but, you know, I'd love to think that Wayun's still out there. And yeah, he is, of course. He's cloned. So, yeah, awesome. <laughs> and last but not least, the wormhole has moved to the Idrin system, and we get a few friends back. Um... Jake is beamed to the Defiant, as well as one of my favorite people from Star Trek Deep Space Nine who just didn't last very long, which is Kaiopaka. Definitely. Uh, or former Kaiopaka. <laughs> and um, goodness, it is that is one of those things where I think that it's so great because this story, even though it's closing one chapter, is literally opening the next. And so that... With all that's happened with the parasites and everything like that, and you're on the edge of your seat for that, the fact that they they give you the Jake and Kai and this new character um, Wex with with Jake, you want to know what happened. And luckily, the very next book in the series is Rising Sun. But again, how well crafted to make you be able to put on the back burner all that you've been learning about with these parasites and what's going on there so that you feel okay with kind of going back in time with Rising Sun to read about what's been happening to Jake. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, It was so exciting to see them pop up. And and like you said, Kaiopaka, she's a character that wasn't on screen for very long, but what a huge impression she made. I loved her character so much and... Uh, they continue her character very, very well in the books. I know a lot of people aren't the biggest fans of Jake um, and, you know, the idea of a Jake novel. I've seen people kind of disparage the idea and talk about like, oh, you know, oh, an entire novel about Jake. As someone who has read these novels, 
do not skip Rising Sun. Do not skip that novel. It is excellent. It is worth the read. So I'm very excited that this novel sets that up uh, for the next novel we'll be reading in this uh, in this retrospective read. Yeah, definitely. I am completely with you. I think that um, Rising Sun, I remember it being fantastic. I'm excited to be able to get back into that because, you know, I haven't read it in a while. We will be coming back to that very soon. Um, our goal is to be there uh, um, sometime in April, and we will be finishing up this whole Deep Space Nine relaunched this kind of first season with Unity at the very end of April. So I'm so excited to be getting to that point um, because the next part of the Deep Space Nine relaunch is, is a little bit interesting. You have the Worlds of series, which kind of continues the fallout from Unity. And then you have the very strange Mirror Universe stuff that starts to happen with Warpath and Soul Key. And it's interesting and it sets up a whole storyline then of course that we don't get any answers to and we are all <laughs> obviously praying that we're going to get some answers to when david r george iii picks up um with deep space nine this year and so all in all dan as we've gotten to the end of um, mission gamma and lesser evil what would you rank um mission gamma as a whole as a storyline and then what would you rank lesser evil just by itself and as a i guess i don't know if you can really do it by itself but what would you just rank lesser evil as well okay well uh, the mission gamma series um i've really enjoyed from start to finish the politics on deep space nine and bajor a little bit more so than the uh adventures in the in the gamma quadrant overall um I'd have to give it really close to a five out of five, um, like maybe a 4.98, <laughs> but, um, you know, a few stumbles here and there with, uh, this gray spirit, uh, you know, it was a little bit tough to get through, but the overall storyline and where it has brought all of these characters through all of the stories, I think is really, really excellent. Lesser Evil itself, um, I really enjoyed. Like I said, I loved the pace. I loved the story. I loved the character work. Um, a few things that were just, you know, a little bit troublesome for me were, for example, um, Kira on the Griffin um, going chasing after uh, the supposedly chasing after uh, Shakar's assassin um, is pretty easily duped by... Uh, a parasite operating on board the ship and i kind of saw that one coming a mile away and you know wanted to kind of you know tap her on the shoulder and say hey don't you realize what's going on here and you know the kind of coincidental things in the gamma quadrant you know bugged me a little bit but that's still you know the story is excellent enough that i would give it overall um four and a half parasites out of five Hmm. Yeah, for me, I think the whole series, I would probably give it um, four out of five. And, and that would be because this gray spirit uh, was just so hard for me to get through and, <laughs> and find really any enjoyment in. And but on a whole, the rest of the books were fantastic and, and um, a little bit different for me. I felt like especially when I got to Cathedral, the Mission Gamma stuff was really interesting. Um, and I really appreciated that storyline. I thought it was it was pretty well done and so um you know on a whole yep four out of five which is a great record for you know a four book series and uh i think for lesser evil i'm with you you know the the part on the griffin was a little bit tropey but on a whole it didn't really ruin any of my enjoyment of the book i i thought it was fun to kind of see action here hero kira again uh, she reminded me a little bit of kira croft from the q comics and so i would give this 4.5 out of 5 action kiras um Ooh, yeah. that's a so, that's a good rating yeah so i i really enjoyed this book um well guys if you haven't read mission gamma i suggest that you go pick up your copies because it's definitely worth the read absolutely 
Well, Matthew, it's been great talking about the wrap-up to Mission Gamma with Lesser Evil. Uh, man, that action hero Kira. We've, we've got to get that action figure made, don't we? We really, really do. Um, you know, I see action hero Kira. Um, I see Kira Croft. You know, she can have um, plenty of, of, of great different action outfits there. So, <laughs> Goodness, I mean, for boys and for girls, what with a kung what, fu action! <laughs> exactly with kung fu action, yeah. Well, guys, it has been a blast talking about Mission Gamma and Kung Fu Action Kira. But that's not the only thing that we have been talking about here on Trek FM the past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And celebrate his life and celebrate his work and his talent and his integrity. And, and if you get a tear in the eye, that's okay. That's, that's, he would approve, Spock would approve. And, um, you know, he'd say, you humans, why do you feel you need to do this? But, but he would approve. Earl Grey. Like, I'm expecting Ricardo Martavon to, like, walk around the corner and be like, Captain Picard, welcome. This is Rise of Five. The shuttlecraft, the shuttlecraft. The orb. Usually you want to be able to capture it or isolate one, but you, you can't do that either because it just keeps, you know, so really does seem like a conundrum of, okay, how do we take this down? You know, this minefield, they are the tribbles of war. To the journey! One guy's like, why don't we just write better stories for Wesley? And then the lead writer's like, you out now! (laughs) The ready room. Riker's all pissed because he can't prop his leg up with no gravity. (laughs) He tries, though. He tries. He's trying. I can can picture it. He's got the momentum makes him somersault. Which really just makes him look spready. Going in circles. He's spinning. (laughs) Commentary, Trek stars. It's also the end of a character and a thing that is really about how uh, death is just a part of life. And that while there's an end, it doesn't mean that it's the end. Literary Treks. Well, actually, it started out life as a comic book pitch. I originally came up with it to pitch to Wildstorm back when they uh, had the comics license. The idea was it would be a one-year series that would run throughout the 12 calendar months of 2001, which was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek. The 602 Club. Sometimes that just works better because you can create and craft a, a story that's very compelling because you're not having to worry about what's happened other places. Okay, we have to make sure this is going to connect to this, and my guess is somehow Agent Carter is going to have something to do with uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later on and maybe something that happens in Age Voltron. Warp 5. In the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus campaign. And in the Arcanus campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you are an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. It helps us out greatly. does make it easier for other listeners to find the show when they search in iTunes. Of course, iTunes reviews and star ratings really help as well because it makes us rise up in those rankings and it makes us more visible to people when they search for shows. So definitely appreciate that as well. If you're not an Apple user, guys, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you You can download the mp3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help keep all of our shows coming to each week is become a patron of the network on Patreon. Um, We are a listener-supported network, and so without you guys, we can't do this. So just visit patreon.com slash trekfm and you'll find all the current goals and milestone contribution levels. We've got great perks for you, uh, early access to content and exclusive content, seats on the content development team, and so much more. Um, And we really do appreciate all the support you give us. Again, you'll find all those details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you would like to contact us, just go to trek.fm slash contact. Leave us a voicemail. Uh, Do that on the sidebar on the show page on any page of the website or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We're on Twitter at trek.fm. 
Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And of course, we've got the listeners-only discussion group. The best place to have any kind of Star Trek conversation these days is at the Babel Conference. Just search the Babel Conference and the Facebook search field there, or make it easy on yourself. Go to the website and click discussion on the menu bar. We've got some great associate producers. We'd like to thank Will Wynn, who's on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn. Of course, he's on the Babel Conference as well. He's the associate producer of The Orb and Earl Grey as well. And he works as Trek FM's content coordinator. If you have any show ideas, just send him an email at will.win at trekfm or a tweet. We'd also like to thank Lisa Stevens for supporting the network and being an associate producer here on Literary Treks. You can find her on Twitter at Flip18 and the great Kenneth Tripp. We thank you for his support of the network and being an associate producer on Literary Treks as well. And before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to support our sponsor, and that sponsor is Audible.com, and they help you, and they help bring literary treks and all of our shows to each week. Audible is a great way to find all the books that you've always wanted to read, just don't have time for these days. A perfect thing to do when you're doing just about anything, whether it's going to work, doing a workout, or just hanging around the house on a lazy Saturday. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we can thank Audible for supporting Literary Treks and the network. Now, Dan, when you're not at home meticulously creating your own action Kira Croft <laughs> action figure by hand, where can we find you? Well, that does take a lot of time, a lot of fine detail painting, but the end result's going to be worth it. <laughs> it really, really is. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matthew, you can find me online on uh, Facebook. I'm uh, facebook.com slash trekletreviews. I'm on Twitter at trekletreviews. And of course, my website, treklet.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both new and old. Each week, I try to have a new review up. I miss a week here and there, but, you know, I try to keep things constant. And Matthew, when uh, you're not searching the galaxy for any more Wayun clones that may be floating around out there, where can we find you? I'm trying to collect them all. Um, you know, kind of like when you have a comic that has a bunch of different covers, you know, exclusive covers. And that's how I feel about the Wayunes. Oh, gosh. The I don't elusive know when I'm going to Yeah. Really elusive. My my favorite is uh, is the Wayun, though, that's a good guy. Oh, he yeah. He was my fave. So, um, guys, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we do talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. So if you've enjoyed all of this Deep Space Nine talk here, um, join us there to talk about that show. Also doing The 602 Club, a great place to come and hang out with us, and we just talk all things geeky all the time. It's so much fun just picking out a great new topic each week and having a great time, just sitting back with friends, having a drink, um, and debating some of our favorite geek topics. And then, of course, you can find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.